When it comes to the word globalization, and we have to bring one country into our conversation today, which is, no surprise, China. Under the current leader Xi Jinping, politically speaking, of course today, there's no denying that Xi Jinping is trying or is making greater effort, is taking China to the next level. But meanwhile, from this economic standpoint, keep in mind, China today is one of the major competitors with the US on this economic level. Since the tariff war until, until right now today, we're still facing major economic deadlock between the US and China. Certainly, we don't see any possible solutions at this moment. But meanwhile, how should we understand the Chinese political influence and also this social economic agenda under the current leader Xi Jinping? And how about the influence over the countries in the global south? Well, in this episode, we are going to address all of them. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Dr. Don Murphy. Dr. Murphy is Associate Professor of National Security Strategy at the U.S. National War College. She specializes in Chinese foreign policy and domestic politics, U.S.-China relations, and also international relations. Of course, if you're familiar with Dr. Murphy's work, that recently she came out with a brand new book, which I encourage everyone to go grab a copy. It's a wonderful read, which is called China's Rise in the Global South, the Middle East, Africa, and Beijing's Alternative World Order. Well, Dr. Murphy, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you for having me, Will. Well, again, Dr. Murphy, I am very honored to have you on the show. I want to get started. As we mentioned before today, when we look at globalization, we have to bring China into the picture. But again, this year that marked the significance of China's Belt and Road Initiative. I want to start the conversation right here. And also, I want to get your reaction based on, based on this number. And based on the research, it says that China, since the beginning of the Belt and Road Initiative rollout, the current number for, uh, for the uh, uh, debt, again, as a loaner to other countries, it's $76.8 billion dollars. But again, we know that this is such a dramatic number and figure for China. And given the fact that today China is using the Belt and Road Initiative, continue to generate much greater influence. Dr. Murphy, first question, how should we understand the Belt and Road Initiative today? And what does that mean when we look at the number such again in debt? How should we understand that? Great. So, well, I should start out with a quick disclaimer that the views that I express on the podcast today are my own, and they don't represent the National War College, the U.S. Department of Defense, or the U.S. government more broadly. And so the way that I look at Belt and Road is that it is, at a very broad level, the articulation of how China sees its view, its role in the world, and how it conceptualizes its role in the world. So if you think back to 2013, and you had the land belt and the, the maritime road, which then in 2015 became Belt and Road. Originally, the geographic scope for that initiative was Asia, Europe, and Africa, but China conceptualizes the Middle East as being part of Asia. So you know, even the Middle East was part of Belt and Road. But over time, it increasingly included Latin America and the Arctic. And from the beginning, I think the PRC made clear if the US and Canada 
wanted to join Belton Road, that would be perfectly acceptable. So the first piece is that it's a global initiative. It's not about specific countries or specific projects. The other piece is that it's all about connectivity. And there tends to be a lot of focus on the infrastructure connectivity, but I think even from the beginning, this was very conceptually about all types of connectivity. It could be infrastructure, trade, finance, people-to-people -people contacts, and, and increasingly you have digital Silk Road and green technology and health and, and you know civilization dialogues, et cetera. So I think the two important things to keep in mind is the global initiative, it encompasses all types of connectivity, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, there is a debt piece, but I think from a conceptual standpoint, the way the PRC is approaching this is that it wants to use its economic and di diplomatic and foreign aid tools in concert together to reach its larger strategic goals. So the debt piece really comes into the foreign aid aspect, which as you know, predates Belt and Road going all the way back into the Mao era. And I think why you see a ballooning of debt at this point is that China's lending for concessional loans has increased at a time when you have increasing um, interest rates, you have these other kind of broader geostrategic factors that are occurring, but there is a fairly heavy debt load, but we always should keep in mind that Chinese banks, because it's still a very heavily state owned sector in China, there's a lot more flexibility for China's banks to for, forgive loans and to delay loans in a way that many private banks are not able to. So I think it is the debt piece is a very small part of the broader connectivity and strategic goals of Belt and Road. Dr. Murphy, how should we understand the current Chinese economic situation? Because again, pre-pandemic, there's no denying that Chinese economy was actually growing. As a matter of fact, many countries were targeting China because this economic prosperity. But as soon as the entire world experienced the pandemic, especially post-pandemic, we've seen the slowness and also we've seen the deadlock for the Chinese economy. So from your perspective, if the Belt and Road Initiative is all about the global influence, it's all about making friends or diplomatically speaking or culturally speaking, but today we have to face the reality, the economic projection for China is not that promising. So the second question to you is, how should we understand the current economic slowness in China and why do more countries continue to make deals with China even though we don't know if the Chinese leader or Xi Jinping can handle this economic deadlock well at this moment. What do you say to that? Right. So I think especially in thinking through Belt and Road, there's several different ways to look at this. So as you mentioned, going all the way back to 2010, so before any aspect of Belt and Road, China's economy was slowing. And the vast majority of the slowing of the economy is related to the level of economic development, the, the stage of development that the PRC is at. There, there's this natural slowing where you used to have 10% growth rates and then 6%. And, and now, you know, the numbers are, are smaller and smaller and COVID obviously had an impact. But I think a lot of the economic impact on Belt and Road and on China's global role really occurred pre-pandemic. So you've had the slowing economy. You also had in 2016 that, that Xi Jinping and PRC leadership put in place capital controls. Mm. And what I mean by this is they were trying to 
prohibit the free flow of renminbi and China's currency outward in FDI because there was a concern that there was too much FDI going out without full scrutiny, right, of these projects. So in 2016, you start to see a real drop in China's foreign direct investment mm. globally. And then you had COVID. And I think COVID occurred at the same time that Chinese leadership was really thinking through what Belt and Road would look like and was already shifting to other functional areas, was already, I think, really scrutinizing projects for sustainability and potential profitability and, and better understanding that. So you had, I think, more of a slowing down of projects even during COVID. And then during COVID, a lot of Belt and Road started to focus on health cooperation, digital cooperation, you know, other areas. So I think it's it's too early to know after COVID what Belt and Road or what China's broader global economic um, relationships look like. But I do think you see a shifting into other functional areas. But something I would highlight for you, though, as China's economy slows, some of the original purpose of Belt and Road was to provide Chinese companies that had excess capacity mm. opportunity mm. outside of China, because increasingly it's more expensive, labor costs more. You know, so it, it could pull in two different directions that as the economy slows, this external economic activity may become more important, right? Mm. So I think that's one thing you should keep in mind. Another is that I think COVID increased countries around the world, their sensitivity to vulnerability of supply chains. Mm -hmm. So I think China is in the process of thinking through what those supply chains look like. And so that could have an impact on Belt and Road. And finally, before COVID, as relations between the US and China and Western Europe and China started to deteriorate, you were already seeing a shifting of investment in particular mm -hmm. away from the US and away from Europe and towards the Middle East, to you know, countries in the Arab Gulf, to countries in, Israel, for example, Israel. And so I think that's, we're kind of at the beginning of that story, that many of the countries that participate in Belt and Road may become a lot more important to China if relations with the US and, and Europe continue to sour. Mm. Dr. Murphy, since the beginning of last year that we have seen a dramatic personnel change under the leadership of Xi Jinping, especially when we talk about this diplomatic and also this political agenda under Xi Jinping. Now, one thing that we always understand is China is on this unstoppable train when we talk about growing influence and generating noises and creating dialogues. Again, that also related to your book. I want to talk about Chinese presence in the continent of Africa. You know, realistically speaking, we know that today, important personnel travel extensively to many countries in Africa and also in reciprocity, the ambassadors and also the diplomats and, you know, the head of the states also visited China one after another. But meanwhile, some people start to question the motivation under Xi Jinping's leadership and even believe that China is trying to replace or trying to take over the role of U.S. for the presence in Africa. Dr. Murphy, from your perspective, how should we understand the Chinese presence in the continent of Africa? Is this actually a replacement for the U.S. or is it simply another competition with the U.S. 
on this economic and political level. What do you say to that, Dr. Murphy? So the way I would frame China's engagement on the, the continent, broadly defined, would be that over multiple decades, China has been building its relations. And we could talk about the Mao era. We're talking about contemporary, but obviously China in many ways had strong relations with many countries on the continent back then. But in the 80s, in the early 90s, because China was focused inward and was reforming its economy, Africa wasn't as important. But in about 2000, when Chinese businesses started going out and going global mm. and seeking markets, Africa started to become important for a number of reasons. One was obviously for resources, for oil and minerals, but also arguably China sees Africa together with much of the rest of the global south as very important markets and having a lot of opportunity for Chinese businesses. That could be for offshoring Chinese businesses into Africa. It could be for selling Chinese goods or, or financial services. But I think they've really seen it as an opportunity. And you saw the symbiotic relationship in certain ways that as China became more involved, you had higher and higher growth rates in many countries in Africa together with that. So there's the, the economic piece, and there's a number of different you know tools that China has used. You mentioned cooperation forums, but also a, attempting to, to move towards free trade agreements or setting mm. up special economic zones and agricultural demonstration centers and large foreign aid projects, and um, and not just concessional loans for foreign aid that that fund infrastructure, but having you know medical diplomacy and have you know building primary schools and so my point here is that for decades china has been building up a very robust presence to meet its economic needs but also because the 53 states on the continent of africa mm. that recognize the peace are important in international organizations and for you know china's broader international appeal so uh, those are the, the primary drivers. I would say that's been a linear progression in many ways over decades. To your question regarding in relation to the US, the, the way I look at this is that Chinese interests and US interests actually in many ways are quite similar mm. in Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. A desire for internal stability, a desire for the flow of, of resources to continue on the continent. Quite frankly, I think both China and the U.S. want to see economic development throughout the continent, right? These are seen as good things, um, both on the Chinese side and on the U.S. side. So I think there are a lot of shared interests. And I also would say that for the U.S., Sub-Saharan Africa in particular has not been a high strategic priority. Mm. And again, this is my view. This is not the U.S. government articulating this. Mm. But compared to other regions of the world, Sub-Saharan Africa has not necessarily been seen as a core vital national interest for the U.S., which in my own work, what I look at is I think that's part of the explanation for why China has felt so confident in publicizing its role in sub-Saharan Africa, because it wasn't seen to be impeding upon or interfering with a U.S. sphere of influence. So, I, you know, you, you framed it at the beginning in terms of competition. In some ways, I see it as its coexistence in, mm. in certain ways. I think both powers have interests that they are pursuing and China is increasingly having influence. There are aspects of China's behavior that the U.S. is concerned about. 
in particular that its foreign aid programs don't have conditionality associated with domestic changes or, or governance, right? There's worries about China's model in foreign aid, but I think for the most part, there's a lot of shared interests. Um, and one example would be even anti-piracy. That's one of the, the mm. um, areas where China's been quite involved in Djibouti and in those type of patrols. And that's something that's been done in a very multilateral way. And most of China's security presence on the continent tends to be through peacekeeping or working with the African Union, you know. So it's doing it's its activities are in a very multilateral way. So that would be my overall response to that question. Well, Dr. Murphy, but let's bring another piece of reality into our conversation is when we talk about the countries in Africa, of course, they're also linked to Belt and Road Initiative. But again, some countries expressed or again, actively participated under this initiative. But meanwhile, when it comes to financial compensation, when it comes to financial support, those countries cannot pay China back. So meanwhile, because of the debt, they actually leave those countries in a greater vulnerabilities. And again, that's why um, within the international community, some argue that China is fully taking advantage of those countries simply because they cannot pay China back for what China has given them. So again, Dr. Murphy, how much do you believe that this is actually one of the, not only just economic strategy, but this is a political strategy for China, I want to be careful, to manipulate this internal system or to manipulate the Chinese influence over the countries that who cannot simply pay China back? How much would you agree with the statement and what would you say that China's role to those countries isn't more than just economic help or it's something much deeper behind the doors? Okay, so broadly, I would say not just the, the debt that results from the financing of infrastructure projects or other aid, but I would say all of the tools that China uses that I described earlier, cooperation forms, special economic zones, et cetera, all of that ultimately is tied in with China wanting more influence and that translating to influence. Um, and so from that standpoint, the fact that China has an asymmetric relationship with basically every country on the continent, that gives China leverage and the potential ability to coerce countries if it wants those countries to support its political objectives in various ways, right? So I think that the debt piece, quite frankly, is, is just one small part of that broader influence. That said, the level of debt that many of these countries have to China, it's becoming increasingly worrisome. It has been accelerating over the last few years. I personally, as an analyst, I think it is too early to tell what some of the current posturing means. Um, and the reason I say this is that historically, China has had an approach of forgiving debt. So especially for the least developed countries, right, the, the poorest countries, that when there are these type of challenges, that China would forgive debt or they would delay loan payments, right? They've had many, many years of this type of of behavior and up until COVID, that continued to be China's approach. 
you do see some changes in this, and I am quite frankly not sure as an analyst at this point the exact root causes for the changes in behavior. So part of it could be that the magnitude of the debt that is owed to China, which you talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, possibly because of the magnitude, it's actually mm. starting to be seen as a threat mm. to China's mm. own domestic economy, you know, or the solvency of its banks, right? Mm. So it could be that due to the, the true magnitude, they are changing their approach. But another take on it could be that they are trying to get a better deal in relation to the multilateral banks and other um, countries that uh, countries and organizations and banks that these countries owe money to that they're trying to it's it's more of a negotiation with the other creditors rather than with the country itself and that's why i think it's a little too early to tell exactly because there's a lot of this posturing but if indeed china's approach has changed and it's only going to take a hard line on this and it's not willing to restructure i think it highlights the ability, you know, the, the potential for these really negative effects. And as you said earlier, um, on the competitive dynamic, this is something that the U.S. government has been highlighting and stressing that's a worry that it would um, be problematic. I, I do think, though, it is important now that we have more and more countries that are suffering from some of these debt issues are coming up and speaking for themselves. I think that's really important. Because ultimately, it's the countries themselves that took out the the loans, and like debt levels are problematic if they're taking out loans from China or from multilateral institutions or from private lenders, right? But obviously, there's a number of countries that are deeply worried about what the debt to China, you know, could mean for them. So I don't want to I don't want to minimize that. But I, what I try to emphasize that from an influence standpoint. I think that's one very small part of the ways in which China is building its influence and, and its leverage. And there's many other components of it that don't necessarily get as much attention. Dr. Murphy, I want to move on to the next session of the conversation regarding China's role in the Middle East. Again, as we mentioned before, China today will actively seeks relationship with countries in the Middle East. And we're looking at two critical major players one is the country of Iran, and the other one is the Saudi Arabia. Well, of course, recently, again, not too long ago, China actually did one of the groundbreaking, uh, again, we'll say initiatives for the whole world that was able to bring Iran and the almost impossible partners coming to the table, which is Saudi Arabia. Now, again, Dr. Murphy, what do you make of that deal? And do you think that such a milestone that did by China actually elevated the Chinese image on this international stage? And also some believe there was such, um, again, again, I want to be careful, a slap in the face for the U.S. Because again, this job could have done much better from the U.S. perspective. But ho however, China was willing or China boldly took the step. What do you say to that? So I think that there's multiple components to this. So one is that for decades, again, I keep emphasizing this, over decades, China has expressed an interest in contributing to peace and stability and to serving as a mediator, right? So in the Middle East, since 2002, they've had a special envoy for the Middle East 
peace process, essentially, mm. for the, the um, Palestinian-Israeli conflict mm. and wanting to contribute to that. So that's been ongoing for over 20 years. In the Middle East, they also have had a special envoy for Syria since 2016. In Africa, they had one since 2007, dealing with Darfur and then South Sudan. Last year, they appointed one for the Horn of Africa. So although they didn't call this activity in brokering a deal between Iran and Saudi, they didn't call it a special envoy, mm -hmm. they didn't frame it in that way, I would see that that behavior fits very squarely with the role that China's been attempting to play in other regional disputes. In this particular case, the things I would highlight for you would be that Saudi and Iran had been negotiating this in other arenas for a while, mm. right? So part of the argument is that, you know, whether it be Iraq or Oman or other countries, you know, hosting them, that essentially that the most important ingredient for this brokered deal was that Iran and Saudi wanted the deal and had already come to that conclusion, mm. and that China played an important role in bringing the parties together, providing a forum for those discussions, right? So that's not to minimize the Chinese role, but it was China's acting as a go-between in certain ways, wasn't necessarily offering their own solutions. Mm. And to our knowledge, mm. China's not offering a security guarantee. It's not offering any sort of way to enforce the deal. It's offering an, an opportunity for the parties to talk with each other. That said, to your original point though, this is the very first time that China has brought regional actors anywhere in the world that have a major dispute together in order to, to normalize relations. So I do think it's significant and I think it's been high profile. And I do think potentially it highlights the ways in which China's role today is different than it was a couple decades ago, or different than it was even five years ago, in that they're really bringing together these regional rivals. Um, but I, to me, I see it as an indicator of China wants stability in the region, and it sees itself as uniquely positioned because it has positive relations with every country in the Middle East. So unlike some other powers, China actually has the ability to sit down with the Iranians and the Saudis and facilitate a discussion. Mm. Dr. Murphy, I know your time is very precious. I got two more questions before letting you go. I want to talk about the last piece of our conversation regarding, again, the part of your book. It's called Beijing's Alternative World Order. When we talk about world order, one thing that comes to our mind is the word military. And again, when we talk about the military power under current leader Xi Jinping can be very much worrisome, especially for the U.S. Now, again, Dr. Murphy, you're the expert for the U.S. and China relations. How should we understand this growing military power in China today? And why do you think it's so concerning to the West? Because we know that uh, recently that if we um, read it carefully, that again, Xi Jinping's government actually increased the budget on the military shape-up. Again, this has been done multiple times. So again, Dr. Murphy, from your perspective, how should we understand the U.S.-China relationship at this moment? And meanwhile, we follow that China's growing power in the military shape-up. What do you say to that? 
Right. So, well, the, the first the first piece I'll address on this is since my own research does tend to focus on Middle East and Africa, I make a quick comment regarding mm. China's more global military presence, sure. because I think that's probably most relevant to what I, I look at, right? So as you're aware, China only has one overseas declared base in Djibouti. Mm. Um, and before mm. that, obviously, there's some base-like activity in the South China Sea. But before Djibouti, China had a very explicit no foreign basing policy. So Djibouti um, was founded in order to support anti-piracy and to potentially help protect the sea lanes of communication and to be able to evacuate out China's citizens, you know, when there's crisis situations like occurred in Libya in 2011. So part of why I bring this up is I think when you're looking globally outside of Asia, I think China still is very hesitant to build a basing presence, whether that's in the Middle East or Africa or, or Latin America or, or other regions, and that China still has a very strong no-alliance approach. So the, the reason I bring this up is I think at this point, China does not envision itself having the same type of military presence um, globally or the same type of alliance structure globally. I think it very much hesitates in relation to um, those aspects of broader global interactions. Regarding the, the broader military budget, I think there's individuals out there who are much better positioned to speak to this, but I would say that the broader issue is China's economy is growing together with that. Its military capability mm. in a linear fashion in many ways has been growing, and it is developing capacity in, in many different um, ways that increasingly potentially threatens U.S. allies in Asia. So the U.S. has treaty allies, which is a treaty ally with Japan, with Korea, with Australia, with Thailand, with the Philippines, right? Um, there's a concern regarding the ways in which the PRC could use its military in Asia, right? Um, and so I think you're very aware, you know, going back over the last at least five years, there's been an increasing concern expressed within U.S. national security strategy, mm. U.S. national mm. defense strategy regarding the potential coercive behavior that the PRC could be engaging in. But the, the broader, you know, why China is seen as a threat, I, I will leave that to other interviewees to talk through that because I think that's an entire other podcast. But um, but in the areas that I look at, in the Middle East and Africa, I think the probability of having bases like the U.S. has in, in these regions is quite small. And I think China conceptualizes its role in these regions that I look at as primarily economic and political and that most of its military activity continues to be done through multilateral organizations. Dr. Murphy, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you, an, again, a very simple question. When we talk about Chinese influence or Chinese presence, from the U.S. perspective, everyone is very concerned about the word called international security. You know, again, either we are looking at this international security through online digital platforms, or we're looking at this cyber security, we're looking at the privacy information, etc. Again, Dr. Murphy, from your perspective, how should we understand the word security or international security if China does not abide the law or does not follow the rules 
because we know that today internet or this technological competition between US and China has become one of the major hot issues. But again, from the US perspective, strongly encourage China to follow the rules and to make sure they understand the word security, understand the word international security, you know, especially through internet and through cyber communication. But meanwhile, China does not seem to understand that or China uh, seem to overlook this issue. So again, Dr. Murphy, from your perspective, how should we understand the word international security when we look at the U.S. and China relationship and when we look at China's uh, political and also this uh, uh, cultural influence? What do you say to that? Yeah, and I think this is it's an incredibly complicated question because to your point, security very broadly defined could include human security mm. or food security or cyber security, you know, space, et cetera, right? And so I do think it's it's really broad. And to your, your point on the degree to which China is aligning with international norms, I think it truly does vary dramatically across functional areas. Mm. So I, I'm not a cyber expert, right? But I think a lot of the tension especially regarding cyber, is the degree to which the, the Chinese government is using cyber capabilities in order to target American companies, right? Mm -hmm. And to steal intellectual property. And so when we talk about the, the, the rules associated with that, often it's that blurring between the role of the state and the role of the private sector and, and what that means. Um, when you look at other aspects of security in the South China Sea or, or the East China Sea, a lot of this comes down to very nuanced debates regarding interpretations of international law. And there is the, the legal piece, but then there's also the power piece. And so I think it's hard to put just a, a set definition on security because it can be so overarching. And part of why I highlight that it really matters by functional area, because certain things China does, UN peacekeeping or anti-piracy, as I brought up earlier, that is very squarely in the liberal order. It's very supportive of the order, right? Um, but then when you have on food security, there often will be illegal fishing or, or that type of activity that very clearly is not with the international order. So I think it's, it's very broad. And, and as your listeners or other analysts think through these issues, they've got to think through the very specific issues to determine whether China is in alignment with the international order or not. Mm. Well, again, Dr. Murphy, when we look at the relationship between U.S. and China and also this growing political power in China, it's rather unpredictable. And of course, at the end of the day, we hope that every single country can follow the rules, can buy the regulations, and so that we are able to see, continuing to see the peace and the stability around the world. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Don Murphy. Again, Dr. Murphy is Associate Professor of National Security Strategy at the U.S. National War College. She specializes in Chinese foreign policy and the domestic politics, U.S.-China relations. And I strongly encourage everyone to go grab a copy of her new book, which is called China's Rise in the Global South, the Middle East, Africa, and Beijing's Alternative World Order. Well, Dr. Murphy, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. We love to have you back on the show as we continue to ch uh, follow the trend and also the topics on China and also the international affairs. So thank you so much for doing this.